Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. This is war, really, isn't it? This is vaccine war. Four. I say to the leaders of those EU countries, look, listen to your people. Three. If a member of the police has been arrested on suspicion of murdering the woman who the vigil is remembering, the police ought to keep a very long way away. Two. Things are getting pretty desperate at Pearson Towers, where... My own main is, um, I'm aspiring to the condition of Olive in On the Buses. One. We have lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The kids may be back at school, but we're still a long way from normality. The storm of sensationalism, the new cyclone, keeps battering the planet-normal rocket of right thinking. More and more EU members are banning the UK's AstraZeneca vaccine, contrary, it seems, to scientific evidence. Britain's now vaccinated almost 40% of our population, with the EU on little more than 10%, and maybe that's the point. We've also seen an outpouring of grief following the tragic death of Sarah Everard, Countless women took to social media to tell their all-too-common story of fear and harassment while walking alone. There was outrage as police moved to disperse a peaceful vigil on Clapham Common. In your Telegraph column, Alison, you write in moving terms about what Sarah Everard's tragic death means to you as a woman and a mother, and we'll come to that. Plus, I should flag that at the end of this podcast, Alison and I will be making a special Planet Normal announcement – But before that, co-pilot, my first question. With hairdressers still closed in England, but open in Wales, are you heading for the land of your fathers? Well, before we hire the coracle, because the listeners don't know that you've got a bit of a track record as an oarsman, Halligan. (laughs) So we'll be getting the little coracle and you can row us across the Severn River so we can go and get a trim in Triorchy. This is what it's come to, Liam. But before we think about the distressing state of our hair, let's just dwell on the one positive fact of the week, which is that you're going to be subject to a 6pm curfew. And I can see no reason why you should be allowed out at all. But a 6pm curfew, which I think is Baroness Jones of the Green Party, has decided that men are not to be trusted outside. Is that right? I think that's, I absolutely agree with Jenny Jones. So I won't go outside to put the bins out after 6pm. I won't be around to row you across the seven at twilight. <laughs> I think we should remind Baroness Jones that there are quite a lot of good men who do useful work in the evening. Paramedics, doctors in casualty, emergency plumbers, deliveroo drivers. Most of us wouldn't have survived the last year without them, Liam. But yeah, coming to my hair, how ridiculous is this? We've actually got a situation where you can't get a haircut in Ross-on-Wye in England, but you pop a few miles across the border and you can have a, you know, a shampoo and set or get your beard trimmed. Things are getting pretty desperate at Pearson Towers where 
my own mane is um, I'm aspiring to the condition of olive in on the buses, <laughs> stragglier and greasier. Really disgusting. And we're not going to do our Blakey sound because that's the I hate you, reason. Butler. I hate you, Butler. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only reason you raise Olive in on the buses. It is the so only I can reason that. Be... And one day we'll have to have a complete sort of 70s sitcom trivia. I'd like to spare a thought for English salon owners who you'll remember, Liam, they spent thousands on COVID secure measures, but now they've got to lose another month's precious takings because the Prime Minister's roadmap won't move out of first gear, even though he assured us he was going to be guided by the data, not the dates. And I would just say to you, why the hell not? I think Boris Johnson's increasingly getting in a difficult corner. If you like, good news is bad news as far as he's concerned, because the more good news that there comes on vaccination rates, astonishing rollout is continuing. Mm. You've had your jab. I've now booked my jab as somebody who's over 50. The more it looks as if hospitals are free or increasingly free of COVID, the more it looks as if the death rate has come down, thankfully, there will be clamour, and rightly so, for us to open up earlier. People will be looking for exits from the Prime Minister's roadmap. If he really is driven by dates rather than data, isn't there a case for opening up earlier than we previously thought? But I wanted to stress also this week that there's all kinds of bad vibes coming from Europe, isn't there? Mm. Uh, and in the end, the vaccine war, the nationalism that we're now seeing will impact our own ability to escape from lockdown because we can only really be safe when our European friends and cousins are safe across the channel. And in some senses, maybe some some people are enjoying the fact that EU countries are having a hard time with their vaccine rollout. Some people are getting quite snarky that the Germans and the French and the Spanish and the Irish even are now banning the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine for now and saying this reflects EU bureaucracy gone wrong and how right we were to leave the European Union mm. and all the rest of it. But look, this is not good because not only does this kind of sense that we can't use the AstraZeneca vaccine in these EU countries undermine our ability to escape from lockdown, but it also undermines the idea of vaccines across the board. This is really very, very dangerous game that the, the EU countries are playing. Well, we've seen Ursula von der Leyen, you know, just has completely lost the plot. I mean, you know, you just don't even know what to do with your jaw. I mean, she has said, <laughs> I'm serious, she's saying the EU could seize production of vaccines and suspend intellectual property rights. And this is what she said, Liam. All options are on the table. We are in the crisis of the century and I'm not ruling out anything for now. We have to make sure Europeans are vaccinated as soon as possible. And this is war, really, isn't it? This is this is vaccine war because she's gonna threatening to invoke Article 122 of the EU Treaty. And this is an emergency clause which allows exceptional measures to be taken if severe difficulties arise in the supply of certain products to the EU member states. And Ursula von der Leyen said this had been used once before during the 1970s oil crisis. So let's just think about what's happened. 
First of all, they were saying, you know, we need your vaccine. Then they were saying, we don't want your crappy vaccine. Now they're saying, we don't want your crappy vaccine. It's too dangerous. We're going to suspend use of it and promote fear amongst our populations. And now they're saying, we do want your crappy, we do want your crappy vaccine and we're going to seize production of it. I mean, have you ever known anything like it, Liam? It just flies in the face of scientific evidence. The European Medical Agency, their own testing centre, have said the AstraZeneca vaccine is completely fine. AstraZeneca themselves have pointed out that if you vaccinate around 17 million people, which is what we've done in the EU and the UK combined, you would expect many of those people to get blood clots because they'd get blood clots anyway. Mm. We have 37 recorded cases of blood clots among people who have had the AstraZeneca vaccine. And countless scientists have pointed out that that's actually lower than you'd expect on the law of averages Mm. if these people hadn't have had the vaccine. So the evidence, such as it is, suggests that the AstraZeneca vaccine, far from causing blood clots, actually prevents them. This is complete madness. And you, you have to wonder if some of the EU governments, if you like, are having their strings pulled by Brussels for various reasons, because it seems that EU voters don't like what's happening. Look at the recent German elections. Angela Merkel just got hammered. And you have to look also, I'm afraid, at Macron's challenge now from his far-right opponent, Marine Le Pen. She now says she can win Alison, and that is not an outlandish claim. They're neck and neck in the polls. She's much closer to beating Macron than she was in 2017, when she still ran him Mm. quite close. So you have to wonder aloud, I hope it's not this, but you have to wonder aloud if these big EU countries are trying to diss the AstraZeneca vaccine in order to distract from the complete fiasco that's been the EU vaccines rollout. And if they are doing that, Alison, I'm afraid, if they are, that's wicked. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of astonishing. And as you said, Liam, reported cases of blood clots after the AstraZeneca vaccine are only running in the mid to high 20s in over 10 million vaccinations. Not only does the AstraZeneca jab apparently carry the same risk as the contraceptive pill, which millions and millions of women take perfectly safely, it's as safe as the Pfizer vaccine. Now, isn't it funny that no one is talking about suspending the use of the Pfizer vaccine because that's not British? And I do think it's a really childish tantrum about the fact that for once, I mean, you know, we we feel incredibly delighted, don't we, that this is something that's gone right for our scientists and um, for our population is that is that the vaccine rollout is astonishing. And as you said, it's being invitations are being extended to people in their 40s. So I don't know, I am I am slightly lost for words by this. I mean, I don't know how it's how it's going to play out. I mean, I I heard just before we started recording that a few of them were now climbing down and saying that they would have the AstraZeneca after all. So is it just a temporary spat or what do you think, Liam? Well, I have to acknowledge, Alison, I have to admit to you, I was naive because as I watched the various vaccine programs roll out, I must say I I hoped inwardly that this might be an opportunity for some kind of renewing of unity, Mm. some kind of uh, hand across the Brexit divide between the UK and the rest of Europe with the rest of Europe acknowledging that for whatever reason, 
and the Brits not gloating, the British vaccine rollout had been better and us providing our vaccines, not just to other countries around the world, but in particular for all kinds of, not just political, but obvious reasons of proximity and safety vaccines to our EU friends and neighbours, not least the Irish, crikey, given that there's a land border. But it's not to be. However cynical you are, it seems, it's never enough. Because even I didn't foresee this utter madness. You have to wonder if Brussels isn't putting pressure on EU governments. And if Brussels is putting pressure on EU governments, I say to the leaders of those EU countries, look, listen to your people, not to the people in Brussels who might give you a job when you're chucked out of politics. It makes me incredibly angry, Liam. And it's been a, it's been a bit of a week for anger, hasn't it? Because we had the appalling policing on Saturday by by the Metropolitan Police officers of a vigil on Clapham Common, which was held to to remember Sarah Everard, who a young woman, 33-year-old marketing executive, lived in Brixton and cruelly, monstrously was snatched on her way home. You know, we we heard the words that no parent would ever oh. want to hear, human remains. I mean, I, I don't know how you felt. I just felt absolutely like struck like a gong when I heard that. And as it happens, my own daughter lives just a few minutes from where Sarah lived. And, you know, like an independent young woman marches around and, you know, does all the things that, that lively young women do in the capital city. So I think it, it struck us very, very hard, Liam. And, and why was that? We're all in this pressure cooker of lockdown, aren't we? I think Where that's right. Yeah. Emotions build up a head of steam very quickly. And I felt that the vigil was appropriate. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, the future queen turned up with a bunch of dafts picked from the gardens at Kensington Palace. Kate was there with, you know, to lay a, a floral tribute, like all women who've lived in London and had an active life, remembering all of her instances of, you know, where you've been in trouble or been groped or come up against these things. And the reason I was so upset, really, was because the police were unbelievably heavy-handed. I mean, you might think, first of all, let's look back to June, Liam, when we had the Black Lives Matter protests in in London, where we actually had members of the police kneeling before these jeering mobs, basically. I remember one guy throwing a bike at a horse. I mean, predominantly these women on Clapham Common were there to pay their respects. Can you imagine the way it looks? Did nobody think, did nobody show any empathy? Here are women coming together in communal sorrow for one of their own. And that I have to say, I've had a lot of men saying, oh, you know, you're saying men are bad and evil. No, we're not saying that. We're saying to live as a woman in the world is to be subject to fears, to humiliations and groping and flashing and God knows what. We have we have these war stories, Liam, we really do. So here are the police. You've had a young woman subject to a violent attack, allegedly, by a policeman. And how did the police respond? They should just have stepped away, let them get on with it, instead of which they went into the bandstand, which had become a temporary shrine full of flowers, and they trampled over the flowers and the and the candles, and they wrestled women to the ground. I mean, it could not have looked worse. And I felt as a woman and as someone with a daughter, a young daughter, a daughter in her 20s, 
that this was double standards. We have these laws, which I object to anyway, this this the confiscation of our liberty, that we shouldn't be allowed to have peaceful protest. Ironically, Liam, COVID levels are incredibly low throughout most of London, but certainly in Clapham, where the virus is described as suppressed. That means not enough cases to even register. Sir Patrick Vallance said this week, there's no sign that you would pick up infection at outside events. So policing, harsh brutal, unsympathetic policing against women who wished to come together to mark this really tragic incident. So I felt, I mean, it was, oh, the way it looked was was really appalling. And I think that, as you said, there were thousands of women, millions of women actually, sharing their own experiences. It was an occasion for dignity and sensitivity. Although I just will add a small coda. I'm afraid there was a uh, a far left agitation mob wasn't there, which which did infiltrate it. There always is. Yeah, there always is. They turn up at every protest and ruin every protest, and that's what they exist for. I must say, Alison, you know, obviously I read your columns every week, and I thought your riff in this week's column on this subject, and particularly when you're talking about your precious daughter, was very very moving. I have two daughters, as you know. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking really hard about their safety, uh, their mum's safety in recent days, as I'm sure many men have. And it's really mm. good of you to say the kind things that you did about men because we both have sons as well. And it's hard to know how yes, how to address really this is. when you're a yeah. man with a son, what you tell your son. And sometimes men feel not just helpless, but um, pilloried. Mm. So it is good of you to say that. And we must keep reaching out across across the gender divide, if you like, Absolutely. as we discuss these these issues. I would also like to speak up for the police just a tiny bit, because in some senses they are damned if they do and damned if they don't. I agree with you. They should have let the vigil happen. But it's very difficult for the police to let the vigil happen when they're following laws made by MPs that say that Mm. the vigils can't happen and then MPs steam in and attack the police for their heavy-handedness. It's interesting, you write about Cressida Dick, who, of course, runs the Met in many ways, an extremely impressive woman. I think Cressida Dick herself should have, maybe she did, we don't know, asked politicians to allow this to happen, asked the London mayor the Home Office, to allow this to happen because of the particular sensitivities surrounding this murdered woman. But the the decision was made that the vigil wasn't allowed, and then when people turned up anyway, as they were always going to, the police did spend a lot of time saying to people, okay, you've had your vigil, can you leave now because this is against the law? And then the cameras start rolling after hours of negotiation, Mm. peaceful Mm. negotiation. That's when the cameras start rolling. That's when the hard left people really steam in, of course, when the police move as they felt that they have to, to uphold the law, to, with all respect, move people on. Because otherwise, there's just going to be a complete free for all. You You and I both think that lockdown's gone too far. That's our opinion. In a free society, we can say it. And we say it here on Planet Normal and elsewhere. But none of us, none of us would suggest that we just disregard the law completely because that way lies madness. So I do think it's tough 
for the police. And it's interesting, despite the ghastly photographs that we've seen, mm. despite the terrible optics of this, as we say in journalism, the public has still, in most polls that I've seen, backed Cressida Dick that she shouldn't have to resign, that she should be able to carry on doing what she's doing and we should learn from this and move on. So I think it's a very, very difficult situation. Of course, no one wants to see women be arrested and wrestled to the ground, particularly in a situation where there's so much grief. But, you know, there are two sides to this story and I think there was wrong on both sides. Yeah, I think that we come back to this central nonsense of these laws still being in place. Crestwick saying it's unlawful, an unlawful gathering. Well, it may be unlawful, but the law is an ass and they should repeal it. In fact, I believe that by the end of March, it is going to be lifted. And hallelujah, because that's absolutely long overdue, getting rid of some of these really draconian laws, which criminalise our most basic human impulses, which are to come together for comfort in a moment of anguish. So let's have a squirt of George. Let's have a squirt of the data from inside NHS England. George is a senior source. He or she has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose George's identity, but we're confident of the authenticity of these statistics, which is why you report them, Alison. But we can't independently verify these numbers from NHS England because they haven't been published yet. Now, we're very lucky, Liam, because George brings Planet Normal listeners the figures before anyone else gets to see them. And the headline this week is extraordinary, actually. 5% COVID occupancy nationally. I'm going to be off this um, hospital bed correspondent job soon. You do I? it so well. <laughs> I want to become champagne and cake correspondent. I thought you liked the nurse's uniform. <laughs> You can put your scraggly hair under the hat. Yeah, let's brush over my increasing um, comparison between me and Hattie Jakes. But anyway, so only 5% COVID occupancy nationally. And George says there was a further 23% reduction in COVID inpatients, slightly down on last week, but still significant. I think we will go below 5,000 inpatients this week. The number of patients in hospital with COVID is halving every two weeks and has been doing so regularly since the peak in mid-January. Bed occupancy levels are now comparable with early June. June, Liam, when we, wow. you know, when, when everything was open. The middle of the summer rather than the back end of winter. That's important too, right? Absolutely. Admissions and inpatients diagnosed have fallen by 90% and 92% respectively. And that still includes nearly 20% nosocomial infection rate. Now, we've talked a lot about this, haven't we, Liam? The fact that so many of the infections are coming from the hospitals and Velma's prediction this week. Oh, hey, Scoops. Here she comes. Here she comes. No sacomial. Yeah, so the Telegraph had a tremendous story about hospital infection as a major driver of the infection that's still being ignored. Astonishing statistics and a study from Public Health Scotland saying that over this period, March to January, 30% of coronavirus cases in which patients died or spent time in critical care were linked to a recent hospital visit. And Professor Helen Colhoun said it was critical for government scientists to factor hospital-acquired infections into modelling if they wanted to get a true picture of the pandemic. 
But coming back to George, George is very, very confident that by Easter, there will be very, very few patients left in most hospitals. And George says, whether we will ever get to zero in the foreseeable future is hard to imagine, given the ongoing uncertainty around the accuracy of the tests. But I feel confident that by Easter, it will be almost gone. So that's amazing. And I think at some point, somebody's going to have to have the courage in public life to call this, to stop inflicting these measures on people. If the epidemic is almost over, if, as George said, it will be over in terms of hospitalisation by Easter, what the hell is the justification for carrying on with these measures which are punishing people so harshly? And there was this brilliant article in The Telegraph, hospital infection is major driver of infection that is still being ignored, well worth your time. And they were going to be putting that into the programme notes so Planet Normal listeners can access that. Hello. Former England hooker Brian Moore here. Well, the Six Nations is back and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Each week we will get the biggest and best names from the world of rugby to dive into every rook, mall and TMO decision. You can't nab a front row seat this year, but with our podcast you don't need to. So just search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast app, hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss it. Following the Meghan and Harry interview with Oprah last week, which, as you know, caused such a stir and the allegations of racism against the royal family, which Prince William did try to rebut this week, bless him. But identity politics, the culture wars have been everywhere in the news. Now, Liam, the best commentator I know on this subject is Douglas Murray. Douglas will be familiar to Planet Normal listeners as a best-selling author and journalist. He's an associate editor at The Spectator. He always crafts wonderfully elegant, pungent essays for that magazine. Douglas's books include The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity, really terrific book. I always read Douglas Murray with a huge sense of pleasure and relief. You think, thank God I'm not going mad. It's it's not me. So I began by asking him what the effect of 12 months of people being locked up had had on us all and on the development of identity politics. Locking the citizenry in their houses for the best part of a year is bound to have some consequences. I think one of them is that we have all lost our normal societal and social receptor mechanisms. We've all been deprived of the company of our friends, of many of our loved ones. We haven't been able to have our our social tentacles out to discuss things, to work things out, to, to hear things, to try things, mm. uh, and to learn things. We've all had that taken away from us and it means that we have all been increasingly locked into the same program. That is the program that the media and social media bring our way. And that's why I think in the last year we've seen these stampedes one after another. We had the moment last summer when Britain was massively affected by the actions of a single policeman in Minnesota 
And suddenly everything in Britain and British history, everything had to be gone over and erased or changed. Uh, the past was suddenly altered. The present was altered. We were told we were living through a pandemic of, of racism that was so serious that it took over in importance the pandemic of corona that we'd been told about until then was the main issue of importance. Mm. And we've had another one of these in recent days in the wake of this tragic murder last week. We've had another wave of people saying women are not safe. Uh, they're being killed by men. We have uh, a crazy Green Party peer saying maybe men should all be put under a curfew <laughs> in Britain because, yeah. of course, murderers are so obeying of the law, aren't they? <laughs> and, and, and so our whole attention seems to be focused on one thing and then another thing comes along and then another. And of course, as I say, this isn't surprising. It's the consequence of us all being locked into the same programme. And a big question for all of us is how or whether we can abstain from participating in that programme or the extent to which we can abstain. Coming back to this phenomenon that you mentioned, I mean, in that incredible speech, Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's no longer the American dream, is it, Douglas? We've got everyone being judged by race or sexual orientation. What are the implications of that? Well, th there are many implications. One of it is simply that our societies will become ever more divided and ever more hierarchical, but just in a new way. I mean, in many ways, as people know, that dream of his was an aspiration more than, as it were, a policy document. It was, it was an aspiration, one towards which, for some years, people recognised they should strive, even if, they, even if they failed. But not even striving for that vision anymore is, I think, incredibly dangerous for society because it means that we have these weird games where racial groups are played against each other. The hierarchy isn't lowered so much as just shifted or switched or changed. And I think this is a, one of the major causes of the massive divisions and growing fissures in society of our time. It's all being done in the name of equality and it's all going to continue to provoke more and more anger and angst and recognition of difference rather than an attempted erasure of difference, which is what many of us had, had banked on. Isn't there an element of overcorrection, say with feminism? You know, it, it's often said, isn't it, that men weren't going to give power up. You know, it, it, it had to be taken from them to some extent. And, and, and that would probably be true with other groups as well. So do you think there is an element of overcorrection and overstatement going on here? We're in an era of overcorrection because nobody can deny that, you know, uh, historically women didn't have all of the chances that men had. Mm. Therefore, for a time, men should be demeaned. Uh, because undeniably, you know, there was racism in the past and there will be some uh, present, certainly. But because of that, we must demean white people for a bit or attribute terrific things to one race and not to another in order to make up for that time when it was the other way around. 
because undeniably homosexuality was prejudiced against throughout most of history. Therefore, for a time, let's present the gays as being a bit better. The straights as being a bit boring, a bit of a waste of space, a bit sad, <laughs> really. All of these, uh, yes, are overcorrections. And I think that it's it's understandable why so many people fall into the trap of thinking that that will be the fastest way to get back to normal. Let's overdo it for a time in order to get back to equal. Now, I don't, I don't believe that's possible. I believe that, among other things, it's perfectly possible that the overcorrection just keeps on going. I think it's possible that it gets very nasty. Mm. I think that it's possible that there's a backlash against it, which actually makes the whole dial move back to before equal again. All of these things are totally possible to foresee. And I also say to those people who believe in overcorrection, which is very common in the feminist movements today, as it is in people who claim to be advocating for social justice more widely, uh, I would say to them, when would you know you'd overreached? When would you know you'd done it for long enough? Who would you trust to tell you to come back to normal? And when? how would it happen? Nobody knows the answers to any of those questions. I've never even seen anyone attempt to answer those questions of mine. They don't bother because they know that no answer exists. You wrote an absolute thunderbolt in the New York Post last week after the Oprah mm. interview with Meghan and Harry. Among other things, Douglas Murray, you said America's culture wars are an export the rest of the world doesn't thank you for, especially we Britons who are now saddled with a living embodiment of those wars in the figure of Meghan Markle by sending her our way. American culture has fired a woke missile right into the heart of the British establishment. You, you're a very elegant writer, but you actually sounded pretty angry to me. Well, I am angry. I'm certainly capable of anger. It's not the most ang angry-making thing that's happened in the last year, but it's, it's disappointing, I have to say. I remember that day a few years ago when the Sussexes married, mm. uh, or at least we thought they married, <laughs> in Windsor, and the wonderful sight of the British public out by the thousands, so happy for them, so happy. And it was a wonderful day in lots of ways because not least, and I wrote about this at the time, not least because there were still people who were trying to pretend that the British public had some problem with a, a mixed-race princess. And I, I don't doubt there are some people, but, wow, the, you didn't hear from them. I mean, we didn't, they weren't prominent. It wasn't as if they had any real vocal presence in that debate. The vast majority of the British public, the overwhelming majority, then, as all opinion polls have shown in recent years, were very happy about, about this. And this that day seemed to be a reminder of that, a demonstration of it. it would, so much good seemed to be able to come from it. And indeed then, from the photograph of Her Majesty the Queen meeting her first mixed-race uh, great-grandchild. Yeah, that was a lovely picture, wasn't it? A beautiful picture. And this, this in a way, you see, is it was always uh, the British way that even when, you know, significant changes occurred, like mass migration and, and much more, that, that, that the British tried to deal with it, voiced their objections and their concerns, and also dealt with by ameliorating, uh, integrating the, the new things that were happening in the country. And I mentioned those two things of the, of the royal wedding and of the Queen meeting her, her great-grandchild because they, they were demonstrations of how Britain would be dealing with this, or so it seemed. And then this great small hope 
was turned into a weapon. And now we have the same boring allegations, the same outrageous allegations, the same smearing little allegations being made against the royal family as against every other institution in our lives. And I object to it. I resent it. I don't believe it. And I particularly resent the fact that, as polling shows in recent days, there is a very large percentage of young people in particular who do believe it, who, when Meghan Markle talks about the racism of the royal family, are impressed by Meghan Markle for calling it out. And what we see there is the origins of a potential problem down the road, where younger people who have never lived in a time of less racism, have the picture projected on the wall ahead of them as, be, as suggesting to them that they've never lived in a more racist time. This is an area of great concern. Yes, I mean, our experiences of race and racism, the two countries, very profoundly different experiences, but they're being conflated, aren't they, mischievously and in a way that, for me, doesn't chime with the British experience. Do you think that's, that's right. right? That's right. I, I, America, I've always been very pro-American in my life. I, I, I first went there in my late teens to work and I have always loved the country and regard it as being a great force for good in the world. However, in recent years, my views of that have started to change, primarily because of the negativity of the American export of its cultural problems to the rest of the world and the attempt to overlay them onto the problems that we may or may not already have. But by the way, there is an answer to this. It's true that it is hard to avoid the dominance of American culture. It's hard, but it's not impossible. And I was arguing this out with an American friend of mine recently who said, but you in Britain should simply be tougher about this. This is a left-wing friend, by the way. He said, you should just be tougher about this. Why should you in Britain be ab absorbing all of our American culture war problems? You should be able to say, no, our history is different from yours. Mm -hmm. And we have an example of this in the French. The French are rejecting the American culture war being laid over the top of French history. The, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, has himself mm -hmm. said, we will not absorb America's culture wars into French culture. They are not relevant. When the statue toppling began last summer, Emmanuel Macron was straight out of the gates. Not one memorial or statue will be brought down in France. We will not be eradicating our culture. And we've had this conversation going on in recent months in French academia, where French academics are rejecting the idea that these American culture war problems should be laid over the French Academy. The, so the French are totally right about this. I enormously admire them for this. What I'm surprised about, and what I think a lot of people abroad away from Britain are surprised about, is that Britain is so pusillanimous on this, that every time an institution faces this, they all cringe. They all offer up whatever is demanded of them to offer up, whether it's the Church of England, whether it's MPs, any public figure, anybody in the public eye is meant to bow to the claims made about our society and our history by people who clearly 
don't like our history or society and clearly know nothing about it. I refuse to be lectured to by very, very stupid and ill-informed people who tell me to educate myself. When they know as much about my culture and more than I do, I might listen to them. But when they keep exposing themselves as knowing nothing about my culture or history, I ignore them. You've put your finger on something there, haven't you? Is it that the... The, the sort of metropolitan elite in the UK bows down to these things. But actually what on Planet Normal, Liam and I have often talked about this, that a sort of vast rump of British people <laughs> don't go along with it at all. It's their, in yes. three sets of inverted commas, it's their betters who are, you know, who are bowing down. It's people in, in the academies and, and uh, you know, in, in the church and the universities. Do you think that's right? Um, I think that is correct, yes. It is the people in charge of institutions in the UK who don't believe in the institutions. And there is, there is an obvious reason for that, which is that when you are in the public eye and these things come at you, it can be, I'm being sensitive and tolerant, as it were, myself on this, it can be difficult to just say, oh, go away with your claim. The tendency is to say, well, I will try to, I will try to look into this and I'll try to come back and, and sensitively reply to it. That is, that is what tends to happen if you're in the, in, the, in the eye of the storm or feel you are. But most people who aren't, have the ability to just say, but it's not like that. Mm. For instance, I think most people in Britain know that men are not a problem for women, are not the problem. It's not as if men stand uh, as this huge constant threat to women and at any point any man might turn into a murderer of women. They know that. But if you're in the public eye and somebody comes at you and says, we have an epidemic of killing of women. What you think is, if you're in the public eye, oh my gosh, I can't be seen to be on the wrong side of this. They know, for instance, that if they were to say, but the murder rates in Britain show that you're far more likely, more than twice as likely to be murdered if you're a man in Britain than as a woman. If they were to say that at the moment that they are in the eye of the storm, maybe they will get one of the terrible crowd stampedes coming right at them. Maybe we'll say, people will say, you are covering over for the killing of women. And then your whole life falls apart. Your whole reputation is assailed. So easier not to do that. People are deeply worried that if they question somebody else's truth, truth being entirely personal now, then, um, then they may be accused of all sorts of things. Now, as I say, there's a difference then between the people who are in the public eye and the people who are not. And the people who are not, maybe, are the only people who can hold on to truth. We could say that you're in one of these uh, these groups, couldn't we? I mean, uh, Planet Normal listeners might not know that you're gay. Have you never Have you never experienced uh, discrimination or prejudice yourself because yes. of being gay? Even when you when you were young, when you were younger, when you were yes, a child. Yes, yes, I have. I think I think um, most people who are gay have at some point. But I don't think it's a great special insight that gay people ha happen to have been uh, discriminated against. I don't think it makes gay people better or more insightful or anything like that. I simply think it's one version of unpleasantness that human beings can experience and can 
push on to each other. But I've never been, as it were, seen to have any special card as a result of it. And I know that because my critics, there are some, fringe though they are, <laughs> uh, there are some critics and they've never ever said, well, maybe we should give Douglas a bit of a break because he's gay. I wouldn't want them to. Mm. I wouldn't expect it. But I find it as a result very interesting when they do that with, for instance, left-wing gay writers who go on and on about being gay as if it is one of the reasons they have the right to be a writer or a journalist or, or anything else. I, I, I think it's always been like that. You know this yourself, that... Women, if they're on the wrong side, I have put wrong like you earlier in, in mm. numerous mm. quotation marks. Mm. That numerous quotation marks. A, a woman marks, yeah. who is on the wrong side has her woman card taken away. That we can all name many prominent black politicians and others who, because they are a conservative, have their racial minority card taken away. You know, does does Kemi Badenoch get any easy ride from the left-wing media because she's black? No. In fact, they seem to dislike her much more because she's mm. black. Mm. Now, can I just talk about this selective policing, which you've written about, something I was actually writing about in my column this week. I mean, we saw one of the most shocking sights of last year was Metropolitan Police taking the knee to these Black Lives Matter protesters. And indeed, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, did that as well. But then being much more brutal with anti-lockdown protesters and indeed at the weekend being a lot more heavy-handed with um, the women who were hold holding a vigil on Clapham, Clapham Common. I mean, is this a fear going forward that the police will police differently causes that they have more or less sympathy with? Uh, I'm not certain that it is that. I, I think that the Metropolitan Police have a particular problem. They, they have always had the problem, uh, or at least for many years now, at least since the 1990s and the McPherson Report, they have constantly had this problem of, um, first of all, the fear of the accusation of racism, which is a unique fear that they have, much more than any other fear. As we see, they were much more fearful of being accused of racism than of being accused of of, of carting women off violently from Clapham Common. Why? Because the idea of the Metropolitan Police is institutionally misogynistic or something is, is not so deeply ingrained, if at all. Whereas they have been fearful ever since the, the very damaging McPherson report. They have been fearful more than anything, above everything else, of the accusation of racism. So inevitably, and the Black Lives Matter protesters knew that. That's why they were able to get away with some of the things they did, like chasing police down a street in uh, Westminster. I mean, I would have thought that the most obvious thing from the the vigil in Clapham Common, was that if a member of the police has been arrested on suspicion of murdering the woman who the vigil is remembering, the police ought to keep a very long way away. What a misstep. But, but the thing I wanted to mention was that there has been a history in the recent history of the, of the Met of swinging from one extreme to another. I, it, it is a very... Um, ugly pattern that they have got they have got caught in it's either them skateboarding with extinction rebellion and dancing <laughs> yes. or it's hauling women off uh, a candlelit vigil in clapham common and i wish there was something in the middle 
unusually for someone in the English-speaking world, you've managed to become a successful public intellectual, which um, something normally only celebrated in France. I mean, you, you have a, a Scottish background. Um, you went to a Catholic school on a music scholarship and thence to Eton and to Oxford. Are, are you a singer, Douglas? Are you a player? What, what's, what's the musician side of you? Yeah, I'm, I'm a scholarship boy. Um, I went from the mm. state school system all the way up uh, the private school system to Eton and then Oxford on scholarship. Occasionally, weirdly enough, that gets used against me. <laughs> Why? Not on um, Planet Normal, mate. No, we, but, uh, we, we, well, we treasure such we treasure such people. Well, it's uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've had in my life and um, the education I had and the people I was able to be inspired by along the way. And I always wish that everyone else was able to have had the same chances. Nowadays, really, only for my own amusement, I play the piano. I, uh, a normal working day for me is um, migrating between my desk and uh, and the piano, where I will. I don't turn my mind off, but I turn to a different bit of my mind. Music's very important to me. Gained an enormous amount in my life through music, and in fact, I wrote at the beginning of the pandemic. I said, among other things, that we were all going to be tested on what our resources were, um, mm. our inner resources. And in those early days, I spent my days reading and and listening to great music and playing some of it. And uh, for me, it was a reminder of one of the things that I treasure most. Well, I have to say, Alison, we've had some fabulous guests on Planet Normal Douglas Murray really is in a league of his own. That was a fabulous tour de force. And I think when he says that British institutions themselves don't believe in British institutions, but the public does, I think he's really onto something. The same way that Orwell was onto something when he talked about the decline of the English language. It was a fabulous interview and let's hope he comes back to Planet Normal soon. Now it's time for our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, insightful, heartfelt, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send to myself and Liam at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you. It informs our thinking. This is from Brendan. It makes me sad to see the hatred against men sparked by the murder of Sarah Everard. For many men, most men in fact, Her murder is just as repulsive and sickening as it is to women. Last year, I was on my way home late at night in a taxi. The taxi driver, a slight man in his late 60s, spotted a man attacking a woman on the pavement of a quiet street. He immediately stopped the taxi and we confronted the man together. And he was a big man and he became violent with us, throwing punches and shouting abuse. We managed to get some other men to come and help. And then the police arrived and took him away. The girl, who we then found out was his wife, was in a terrible state. I relate this only to make the point. We men are not all predators and wife beaters. We are all in this fight together against a common enemy. I also have a daughter who is 20 years old and who has been subjected to some horrible unwanted advances, including being groped. I was thinking about her when I confronted that monster in the street. I punched him in the face to get him off the poor girl he was attacking. I am 58 years old. I haven't thrown a punch since I was at school, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. As I said, we are all in this together. Well said, Brendan. And from Brendan to Duncan, as a father of a daughter, it feels strange to have no voice in the debate following the Sarah Everard tragedy. 
as a man I have no feelings for my own daughter, it seems. Not only are men very much the underdog in today's society, says Duncan, but the desire to suppress and oppress masculinity is not helping the matter either. Masculinity done well used to be known as chivalry, the application of all the male powers to the power of good, the defence and admiration of women, of family, of community, of country. In oppressing masculinity, we do not rid ourselves of the natural instincts to use force. We merely remove them from the power of good and leave them only in the hands of the bad. In forcing men to become more feminine in the workplace and throughout society, we merely disable those who would stand against the inappropriate use of force, which leave those who lack control and discipline free to run riot. If we wish to defend femininity, we need to start to celebrate masculinity again, good masculinity, chivalry and above all else, to celebrate the difference in the sexes and empower them to be their best. Listening to the sexism against men throughout this last week has left many men shouting abuse at the TV screen and some too numb to care. This is a mother's perspective just in from Amanda. Alison, my daughter, lives in Clapham. She walks the same streets that Sarah Everard once walked. My daughter regularly goes for runs on Clapham Common and tells me that she nearly always attracts unwelcome attention from males, often being heckled from open car windows and as drivers slow down to drive alongside her. I feel angry that this behaviour is tolerated by society and that my daughter has no remedy in law. In my view, we should be taking a zero-tolerance approach to this low-level sexual offending and framing legislation to criminalise it. I recall from my own experiences working at the Rape and Serious Sexual Assault Unit at at the Crown Prosecution Service several years ago that men who go on to commit serious sexual offences often start with lower level offending. That's very, very true, Liam. And Amanda continues, it could also be part of the curriculum to teach boys about the impact of their unwelcome behaviour. In my experience as a mother of a six foot one inch tall 23 year old son, males sometimes lack an understanding of how intimidating they can be. That's well said as well. This is from Amy. That's not her real name. I'm an avid Planet Normal listener and look forward to my weekly dose of reality. I was compelled to write in after Alison spoke out about how much she has been struggling with this lockdown. I am a new mum to a lovely, healthy three-month-old baby girl. She is perfect, but I am struggling. I've never before had issues with my mental health, ever the positive optimist in the room, but lately things have been hard. This baby has long been on the cards and we are delighted to have this new person in our lives. But the isolation and lack of support has left us feeling low and at times full of despair, a feeling I don't think I have ever known before. The guilt that comes with this when I'm meant to be enjoying my baby is at times unbearable. I know having a baby is not meant to be easy, but this is a cruel, senseless situation where new mums like me have to just survive the days. No baby classes, no contact with friends, no contact with your mum, no days to get out of the house. The only thing I'm allowed to do is go for a walk, Groundhog Day. On top of that, I recently sought counselling for what was flagged as mild to moderate postnatal depression and I had to wait four weeks for a consultation only to be told my condition wasn't severe enough for me to be referred 
to a counselling service. Instead, I was told I could self-refer to any of a number of private counsellors in my area. Well, obviously, glad I waited four weeks for that nugget of wisdom. I recently found myself Googling how to make the best of your maternity leave. Much like Alison said, when a bout of depression looms on the horizon, the advice was to do all those things we are no longer allowed to do. Meet up with friends, see family, go for a coffee and so on. Why are we still in this lockdown? Those most vulnerable to COVID-19 have been vaccinated. Right now, we are just existing. This is no way to live. There's a total lack of perspective on this situation. And I dread to think what happens when the next pandemic hits. I find this whole situation hopeless. When will it end? The cure is so much worse than the disease. Well, Liam, I should say to listeners that you and I wrote to Amy and I sent all my best top tips for making the most of her time with her lovely baby. And and she has been in touch with us and has managed to get in contact with some other local mums to, 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 to bring up her mood a bit. So, but a wonderful email and just a reminder of how all sorts of human beings are being affected by being locked up. And if Amy wants to write to us again, not her real name, then we can update listeners on how mum and baby are getting on. Here's a couple of our reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're currently averaging 4.7 out of 5 stars, Alison, across hundreds of reviews. All those Halligan cousins, co-pilot. <laughs> now, not all of them are positive, but the vast, vast majority of them are, and for that we're most grateful. So refreshing, says Joe, to hear a credible, well-researched, clearly presented contrary view to the one-sided fear narrative we're still being fed by most mainstream media. We eagerly await Planet Normal every Thursday morning in our household, and by the end, I've usually both laughed and cried. You two are amazing. Courageous journalist, says Joe. I think she's getting us confused with someone else, Alison. <laughs> yeah. Then again, we did title last week's Planet Normal, Courageous Stupidity. Well, not, not, not many people are as brave as I am to ask really obvious, dumb economic questions <laughs> to a world expert that happens to be my... Co-pilot. Oh, Alison, you say all the right things. <laughs> but look, before we go, it's time for our... Dun, 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 dun. Big announcement. For here on Planet Normal, here it is, squirreled away under one of those Clanger-style dustbin lids, <laughs> we are now in possession not of Baby Clanger, not even the Soup Dragon, but instead a stash of limited edition, rare as rocking horse droppings, as scarce as hen's teeth, Planet Normal mugs. Hooray! I thought you were the Planet Normal mug, but apparently now there are several of them and you can drink hot beverages out of them. Yes, they're here. Rejoice, rejoice. And now the only way to get your hot and sweaty mitts on a beautiful Planet Normal mug is to win our email of the week competition. So renewed drum roll, Alison, which of today's email is the lucky winner of the inaugural Planet Normal Mug Award? Oh, crikey. Amazingly hot competition. I think we should give it to Amy, not her real name. Yeah. The mother of the beautiful three-month-old baby girl. And I hope that Amy will love her mug. Who could not want to look at our happy, smiling, ranting, raving faces? <laughs> Raise a toast with a with a nice mug of tea to us and to the end of lockdown. So, Amy, the mug will be in the post to you, darling. Congratulations, Amy. So just send us an email to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk with the subject heading Mug Winner. Give us your postal address and a wonderful Planet Normal mug will be beamed over to you. Toot sweet. 
That's right. And we'll keep the mug competition going each and every week from now on. So please keep your emails coming. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week. Our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Alison and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released between 11am and 12 noon. And we'll put that link too in the show notes to this episode. Do please leave us a five-star rating, even if you aren't a Halligan cousin, and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast that helps others to find us, helping the marvellous Planet Normal family to grow. So as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bougeard, and Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.